Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. disgusting the fact that people can be directly involved in murder but yet have all been members of paramilitaries and work for special branch or whatever 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 agency it's disgusting it turns my guts i hate informers and i hate everything about them if these people were under surveillance before why did they let them carry it out that's my question to the police and the police ombudsman and the special branch and the military or whoever it was had them under surveillance why did they let this happen Last death threat I had was a year ago. A year? Ah, yep. A British soldier was jailed for passing your organisation information at, mm. at one point. So you would feel that's acceptable levels of collusion? I know that shit 30 years ago. You did in Ireland, we're all you did. It's a sellout. 30 years ago, it's still not sold out. Well, it's up to the people. Oh, 72% of the people voted for, 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 for the Good Friday Agreement. So there you go. That outweighs the, the negative people. I wouldn't listen to their people because then people were engaged in the conflict. And the new breed of loyalists, I, I wouldn't need to accept. Where were they when we were getting the Andersons town, going off to the IRA? Where were these people then? So I wouldn't listen to them people. They're warmongers and they're fearmongers. How did you feel? I got it. Sad. Disgusted at what they had done. It was carnage. It was mayhem. Johnny, it's been 20 years since you left Northern Ireland. Is it a place that you think about much? And in those 20 years, do you think much has changed? Absolutely. I think about it every day. And I speak to people from there every single day in life. And from what I hear and what I've seen myself, it's changed immensely for the better since past conflict till Good Friday Agreement era. It's the, the, the Belfast itself and the city is thriving and the people are starting to sort of way reach out towards each other, something that they would not have done before the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, Catholics and Protestants, maybe not on the scale that, that people would like, but slowly but surely it's happening. So yes, it's a better place, it's a, it's a wonderful place and it's, it's evident with all the tourists through, throughout the world coming there. And still to this day, 20 plus years after the Good Friday Agreement, it's still a massive tourist attraction. So that's says all. I suppose you keep up to date on the news and there's been 
issues around the protocol and, and Brexit and there has been disorder on the streets, mainly from the loyalist side. What's your opinion of that? You know, does it make you sad? Well, I, yes, absolutely. When you see what all the hard work that's been done over the years to, to make the Good Friday Agreement work. And I wouldn't, I didn't read too much into the street fans. I think it was just a, a knee-jerk reaction to them. And I don't honestly believe that the, the, the kids that were doing what they were doing didn't actually realise that there was, they were doing it for a reason. It was just, sadly, in their opinion, oh, this is, this is good, this is great. There hasn't been rats in 20 years. Oh, this is great, that's burn buses. And that, it's evident in the fact that it didn't last that long. And pr- probably because of the good work that the community leaders done to make it not go any further than it did. Yes, it makes me sad because there's a lot of work done to make the Good Friday Agreement work. But I mean, you, you will have skirmishes like that along the way. The main thing is, in my opinion, and most people's opinion, I would believe, is the fact that people's not being killed on a daily basis. And bombs aren't exploding on a daily basis. I mean, the last time a bomb was over there, you could think about it like, isn't it? Whereas before the, the Good Friday Agreement, there was bombs being exploded every day, sometimes more than one. Do you worry that it could ever go back to that? Because it is described as having a fragile piece. Um, no. no, not at well, all. Well, that's war from some certain politicians. There's no way, in my opinion, that's going to go back. First and foremost, there's no appetite for it. I mean, that past conflict was a bloody conflict that lasted years and years and years. Where almost 4,000 people, Catholics and Protestants, soldiers and police lost their lives. Hard work was done to create and achieve the Good Friday Agreement. And now we're seeing the benefits of the Good Friday Agreement where these murders and bombs are, are not happening and I don't believe, I believe that the security forces are on top of it and I don't believe that that would go back. You will get the odd incident I believe but not on the scale that it once was almost over 20 years ago. Why do paramilitaries exist so long after the Good Friday Agreement? Well, I mean it's a question that's asked all the time. Have they been allowed to exist? What's your opinion? Well the Good Friday Agreement states that that will work towards disbanding. Now the IRA years ago said that they had left the stage. I believe that they have. Although IRA people are still there, but they're not active, I don't believe. And I can't speak for them, I can't speak for the the people who monitor that, but it's evident in the fact that nobody's being killed. So that I'm satisfied with that. As for the other paramilitary groups, it's I my personal opinion is that there's no need for them to be there. If we're speaking about loyalist paramilitaries, there's nothing to defend. They're not under threat. There was a threat from dissident Republicans, but that's, that's a reason. And the, the threat from the dissident Republican, I think they killed two soldiers, two prison officers, two policemen, and a, a multiple members of their own community that killed. So if, 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 the, if there was a threat from them, the loyalist paramilitaries didn't do nothing then when the police, the soldiers, and the the prison officers were killed. I don't see them mm-hmm. wanting to use an excuse to still be around. So I don't think, in my, opinion, my personal opinion, I don't think they should be there because there's no, there's no threat to their already beloved country. Most police officers would say that paramilitaries are just glorified organised crime gangs now. That, that I mean, we get everywhere. You'll get them yeah. in London, you'll get them I in London. I was going to say that. But that was a different... Uh, Northern Ireland was a different place to the rest of the United Kingdom. And 
Now that there's peace, paramotors are still there. You go to Scotland, England, Wales, Liverpool, Manchester, all the big cities, you will have crime gangs. So Belfast is not going to be absent to that. There will be crime gangs. And sadly, the, 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 that will come from paramilitaries. And it's evident in the fact that the police on a daily basis are, are, are seizing drugs related to paramilitaries or from whatever side. So do you feel sad that the name of an organisation that was close to your heart, as you have described it in the past, is now aligned with drugs and criminality to that extent? It's not about loyalism anymore. Well, it's just like people have their own opinions and people change. When I was there, it was many, many, many years ago. And people growing up now and probably being in that organisation, they probably were only toddlers when I was around. So people's mindsets change and people, I've no doubt that people still join the paramilitary groupings because they, they feel it's the same thing to do. It's that they come from them communities that want to be part of either one loyalist organisation or the other. But I personally don't believe that. I believe that the paramilitaries that were there who were rewarded from the good, from the benefits of the Good Friday Agreement should have used their influence to, to ensure that no young people did come and join the organisation. And more importantly, use their influence to disband the organisation and make it go away. And can you see... Because, in my opinion, the only threat the paramilitary organisations are in Lourdes communities are to their own people. And that's a sad reality. And are you saying that's different to when you were in Belfast? Well, when I was in Belfast, you had different circumstances. We, we were engaged in a war. And I was engaged in um, defending my community against a, a, an onslaught from Republicans. So there was no time for to do the things that, that's being done now. Our, our job was like, like, like soldiers, illegitimately. We were doing what the British soldiers were getting paid to do in Iraq. We were doing that illegally. And also. Would you, can you see a time in your life that there will be paramilitaries? Probably not in my life, no, because it's too, look, there's too much benefits and plus people at the leadership at the top of these organisations have made a lot of enemies. And if these paramilitary leaders and godfathers became individuals overnight, they would be in serious, serious trouble. And they know that. And that's why they need to keep intact because they can't be an individual. They can't become uh, isolated as an individual who... If somebody wants to score, sell an old score from five years, ten years, or twenty years ago, they're going to do it, and there's nobody to turn to. So it suits them to be intact for their own protection, not the protection of the community. That's my opinion. Do you think unionist politicians play a role in not tackling paramilitaries that they aren't doing enough to stop their existence? Well, to be honest, I think that and. Isolated incidents they have done, they've engaged with them, they've helped them, but probably just when it suits themselves. But the paramilitaries probably didn't see what they were at. They probably thought, this is great, we're meeting with the DUP or whatever unionist party it would be. But in reality, in my opinion, again, they were doing it to suit themselves. So there has been cases where they have engaged from that level, politicians to paramilitaries. Do you think that there is good political representation for loyalists that are still in Northern Ireland? Absolutely not, no. There was at a time, 
at the early start, at the, at the, at the start of the Good Friday Agreement, the talks process, when you had the PUP, you had elected representatives and you had to do the, the, the then UDP. And yes, that, that was great then because they had, you had a, you had your food in. I mean, members of the PUP and members of the UDP had their food, they, they had a voice for our community. The, the, the community areas that we came from, West Belfast, East Belfast, up the bridge through three of the six counties, the loyalist areas. Yes, they, they, they had a voice, but that voice is, is disappearing, sadly. What is your opinion on the protocol? I mean, there's people who are very, very passionate about it, that, you know, what's, they want to protect Northern Ireland. Have you formed much of an opinion on it? I don't. I have no opinion on it whatsoever. I, I just, I feel that that's just... As the politicians are making a massive issue of it, and I do listen to the news and I do hear and I do follow things up. And if you hear some of the businessmen over there, and all loyalist businessmen, unionist businessmen, on both sides, they seem to think that they're that, that they, they some some people that I've heard seem to be happy, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's, it's, it's like mixed emotions. You're going, yeah. well, who's right and who's wrong? But at the end of the day, it's up to the the politicians. They're the ones that's in the driving seat. And, and if, if you look what's happened in the last couple of weeks, I think it's back home is in a serious place when it comes to when it comes to the next elections. There'll be, a, I, I believe, there'll be a big, big shift. Absolutely. So take me back, Johnny, to when you grew up, because I mean, I've been speaking to so many different people from so many different backgrounds on this podcast. There will be people with par- a paramilitary background, a political background, and. Uh, sports people, celebrities. You're someone who is synonymous with the conflict in Northern Ireland. You yeah. yourself would say you played a pivotal role. Um, you were born on the old New York Lodge Road, is that right? 1963? I, mean, yeah, I was born into the Troubles. Yeah. I and mean, when you come from an area like where I came from and there's nothing but trouble, you'll grow into that. You'll become a part of that. And then your destination, whatever way you gauge yourself, is entirely up to yourself. And that my destination was the paramilitaries, so as paramilitaries. And yes, I, I was, I was uh, a very, very, I believe, massive part of, of our organisation and its activities. But as a child growing up, you were the youngest of seven children. Yeah. You went to Sunday school. Yeah. Um, your daddy Jimmy, your mommy Mabel. Um, absolutely not political at all. There was not absolutely not a political bone in my mother or father's uh, bone body, and in fact, my father, his friends were Catholics from North Belfast. Um, he was a quiet man. He was just troubles just sickened him. He kept himself to himself. Catholic friends. He was he was an animal lover. He loved pigeons and dogs, and that's what his friendship became with his Catholic friends through pigeons and through dogs. And he that was most of his life right up until till he passed away. He still maintained his friendship with with, with the Catholics, and I felt guilty, a sense of guilt, because I became this person who every Catholic described as he's a monster, Johnny Johnny Adair. He's a they hated me. So I felt guilty and I tried to keep, which I couldn't do because it was on the news and the police were always raiding. And, and I, but I felt a sense of guilt because my father was not that, that man. And I knew deep down inside he, he would never challenged me and told me it was wrong because I was an adult then. But I, I felt guilty because I knew inside I could, I could sense that he was probably feeling sorrow because 
his son was engaged against people who were his friends, albeit I wasn't going after any of his friends. Well, would you, you would have been the first in the family to get involved in paramilitaries. And the only. Uh, the only one. Mm. So, I mean, that must have been a shock. You were the youngest of seven, and then this just kind of came out of nowhere. Well, what, what, 1969, the troubles broke out. Um, community, communities like areas from where we came from was a war zone. That's what it was. And at nine, ten years of age, eight, eight nine, ten years of age, you were standing watching uniformed, uniformed members of the paramilitary organisation guarding your streets. The UDA. UDA, UVF, you've seen, you've seen the both of them. And as a young child, I mean, it went, it switched from playing cowboys and Indians to playing UDA or UVF, man. That, that's the reality of a 10 year old boy. You're running about with pickaxes and you and shooting shields and, GDA ads, you wanted to be like them. They were, fuck, they're, 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 they're our heroes. And subsequently, lots of them did become my heroes on both sides, UVF and UDA, um, for the role and the defense they took as, as, as I would say, see on our lives in these communities that were under siege, under attack. Can you remember the first, I mean, incident of the troubles, um, that, in your in your memory as a child, the first one is there. You know, is there something that sticks yep. out? Yep. Where I lived, it was well before the civil rights and before the outbreak of the of the troubles. Streets were mixed. We all lived in streets in Belfast. Forty percent of them Protestants, sixty percent Catholics, or vice versa. Now, at that young age, I don't. My friends were Catholics, and when I realised that something was up, the day after the the night of the when the Put each other, burned everybody out, more brood on each other, both sides. And I woke up one day in, a, in the street that I lived in, half of the houses were still burning, still smouldering. And I didn't know, I was like, what's this all about? But it was as the hours passed by, you heard your parents talk and people in the street talking, they were takes, they were burnt out because they were takes, they were fiends, they were burnt out. And then I realised then, God, and then you're just brought up to, to we, we were just everybody. Because the Catholics were burnt out and face versa on the, on the, on the other side, Protestants were burnt out. So then that's where the hate came there. They burned our people out. We burned our people out. So we hate Catholics. Catholics hate Protestants. And then it just went on from, from that. Once the, the, the two areas were, the, the, the two traditions were segregated. And then it was gun battles in the street where a young boy, you were watching it. You were watching UDN, UVF members firing up. Cross peace lines, and you were sometimes, and then the soldiers you witnessed all that, and then you just became tough and hardened to all that. And wherever you you woke, and and I'm going back to the early seventies when it was really, really bad. I think in nineteen seventy three there was three hundred fifty sectarian murders alone in that one year. So that's how bad it was then. So you remember, I was about ten, nine, eight then, and every night, every day there was incidents or at night there was gun battles with the army and the republicans or vice versa, loyalists and republicans it was, for a young kid it was dangerous, it was scary but it was it was something that, it was better than a film set, it was better than watching a film, a John Wayne film it was, it was, it was great but dangerous and then when all that shooting stopped you'd have went up and you'd have picked all the empty cartridges from the army or from the paramilitaries and you'd have played about the burning buses, the burning, the, or you'd have went up the shops and they were able to blow shops up. And it was just, it was just, just what you see, sadly, 
some of the incidents we're witnessing on the news now in Ukraine, sadly, that's the way Belfast was for a long, long, long time. And then we just the adoption came with each other. We hit them, look what they're doing to our community, look what they're doing to our people. And then you wouldn't have had to throw a stone that far that someone had that, that, that you knew one had been shot dead or blown up. That's the way it was. And would you have been involved in sectarian clashes? Absolutely, as well? yes, we would have carry the crates of bottles up to the, the, the men. We were only kids, but we would have got, there was crates in them days and the bottles were glass. So we had a, uh, crates of bottles and we'd have brought them to the corners for the men who was doing all the rent. And of course, we, as a young age, you thought it was great. Big army sergeant or a pipe coming down and you wanted to hit that with a stone. Hundreds of people were doing it like so you were in no danger. And at a young age, yes, you thought it was great if, if your stone or your bottle hit that, <laughs> that pig or sergeant. Yes, it was, it was crazy. So, how was your teenage years? Um, you were in a band, a Red yeah. Online, Offensive Weapon. You were also yeah, in Skinheads. Skinhead band called Offensive Weapon. What Skinheads? Skinheads Chief Heads. And, right. and, and that days, it was the punk rockers and the, the mods and the Skinheads. And then the, the Skinhead fad came back. It was out in the 60s and then it disappeared along with the mods. And then it came back in the early, late 70s. And we became a part of it. We went to London and we visited where we, we watched some of the bands and we were right where we were National Front, then we were British Movement, which just all, it just came with the, the teeny, with the skinhead fan, was part, of the, uh, was part of the cult. So we thought it was cool to be National Front, our British Movement, that was part of the skinhead thing. And we went to London, we seen some bands playing with her, then we formed our own band and Hundreds of skinheads followed this. What did you play in the band? <laughs> the bass guitar, pathetically. <laughs> Pathetic. But we done, I think we done, we done lots of gigs. And at that age, for 17 or something, we were making posters and all. You, you were in a band, you were rehearsing. You had your drums, you had your big amplifiers, you had your, and of course, your guitars were telling me what string to have. <laughs> but it, it was good. And we, 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 uh, we were known, like, we were well known with a big team, with a big cult, big, big fan base, like, and to think that hundreds of people swallowing you everywhere, it was great. Well, do you, did you really understand what the National Front was about, or, no, you know? No, we just, that sadly, it was uh, just against colour, that's what that was, that was, we were just kids, we didn't, we didn't understand. The reason why we swayed towards the National Front was because they were against the IRA and some of their leaflets and pamphlets would have been like hang IRA scum and things like that. So that made us, and Ulster is British, that made us, all the English are supporting us. So that mm -hmm. drew us towards the National Front. Mm -hmm. Also because that we found that they're supporting our cause, which they did do. Do you, do you regret ever kind of going down that route with the... Oh, would, would, would you do it now? Well, that, that's what you've done. You were just part of the skinhead movement. So you've done that. You sung songs and that the words weren't good. They weren't love songs. There were songs about the RUC and the songs about just just, just nasty songs. But that was the, that was like the, the, the punk area where anarchy, where punks... That was just crazy. But there's, we were part of it. Yeah, there was but a big scene at Belfast. We, uh, we probably didn't mean what we were saying or what we were saying, but it was part of the, the teenage fan, fad at the time. So how did you go from being in a band to joining the UDA? Or Ulster well, Young Militants, wasn't well, it first? Just to be honest with you, I, I worked, right? And when I left school, 
And it was the time of the hunger strikers, and it was Belfast was a dangerous, dangerous place then. It was frightening because the, the, the families coming from Republicans when the, the hunger strikers were on hunger strike and they were dying one at a time. And, that it was really, really bad. So I felt there was a, the, the, the Ulster Defence Regiment at the time. So I felt the only way I can help to try and defeat the IRA, although I worked full time, if I could join the Ulster Defence Regiment part time, maybe do a couple of nights a week. And that would be my way of trying to defeat or slow down the, the IRA. So I went through the motions. Uh, I went to a few meetings. I went to up the, the the UDR place in uh, Malone, and I went through many meetings, but then somewhere along the line, the security within the UDR. Now at that time, I wasn't associated with the paramilitaries. Maybe National Front, which like was a, a, a legitimate party then, but the security and it said, wouldn't that me? So after about six or seven meetings, and I thought I was getting in, and it was for the right reasons it was, but then I was disappointed when the now you you don't ask about why. I had minor, minor criminal convictions and a war minor. And I think the only thing was that they believed that it was maybe the wrong type of person that you'd want into the UDR. So after that, then the only other option I had, then come the, 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 the hunger strikers then were moved on to the the the, uh, the, the, the protest in 1985, which was really, was, was really, really serious, where Paisley had brought hundreds and hundreds of thousands to the city hall. And again, it was a sense of fear. So it was around about these times that we said, look, we need to do something. You had the third force and all. And then people were saying, ah, they're not going to do nothing. So we knew either the UVF or the UDF, they, would, they, they were at the time, especially in particular the UVF, they were very active and successful against the IRA. So... I wanted to be part of that. If I couldn't, the, the UDR refused me. There's no way I'm going to join the RU fucking C. So I would join the UDA. And then I felt that, because that, that, around about them times in, in, in the 80s, that it was a dangerous place where we, that we thought it was a sellout. We thought we just, we just there was panic situation. And I believe that, that and I know, the ranks of the oh Lord's parliamentaries did swell then. And that's when I became part of it. Um, the UDA was legal, wasn't it? Absolutely. It was yeah, legal yeah, then. Yeah, absolutely. So you you didn't have anything to fear from the police, did you? Really? Well, I didn't like the police. Never liked the police. Didn't trust the police. They didn't like me. So you, so I just I just didn't want the police. Didn't no, no love for the police. To be honest with you, but then the, the you see I'm talking about. Yeah. Back to Paisley because you mentioned them there. Yeah. Um. When did you go to the city hall to hear him? Yes, yes. So when you were standing in that crowd listening to him and it was a very blood and thunder speech, were yeah. you like, did well, that push you to well, go well, that bit? Paisley was our leader. That's what we were. That's what we all used to, what people would sing, Paisley as our leader. So as a young teen, even as a teenager, like Paisley was our leader. Albeit he was a Christian one. We weren't Christians, but we felt big Paisley's our leader. He, whatever he put our trust in Paisley, and that's that's what we were. We followed Paisley, and then as you, you get older, then you realize that you're doing things that Paisley and his party's not doing. And you believe that the things that we were doing, albeit illegal, but they were more effective than probably pre and our knowledge and shouting no surrender. FTP, what we were doing was was was, was a, a more effective, I believe, in my opinion, than than. Rallies and, and protests, and not doing, not following them up, 
So we were engaging with the enemy, which was I felt this is better, and this will maybe maybe I think think twice about what they're doing to our people. Do you think? And I I have spoken to other loyalists who were around at that time. Do you think that Paisley talk the talk? Kind of push certain people, including paramilitaries, into doing certain things, well, and then pulled away that, that, and distanced himself that, from that, it. This is this is when you hear that, or you hear that all the time. Paisley walk, walked him up the top of a hill and then let him walk over, and he walked back. And we were young, and we just we Paisley was our god. That's he was. That's what it was. He was our god, and anybody like that, and my opinion, I did. You've seen a great loyalist leader. Then along outside of that, if you want to talk about paramilitary ways. Although I was a member of the Parliament organization when um, we see Michael Stone get into the graveyard. Although people might say, oh, that, that's wrong what he done. But in my opinion, in my heart, and as a, a young teenager in the UDA, who were not active in them times, but the IRA were very active against us and against the Protestant people. But you see this man single-handedly going into a graveyard and doing what he was doing. And then when we realised that that was a loyalist, I mean, that, that gave me such a lift. And I give, I'm sure I could speak for most of the people in the, in the loyalist community, albeit people say that's wrong, he did and he done that. No, I believe that he was brave and he, he went in there single heart handedly and he done what, what no our mom would have done before. So things like that give me a lift. Because it was a, that was a time where, where the, the UDA in particular was very inactive, but the IRA were very active. But was Stone in the UDA when he carried out that attack? Well, you hear all sorts of rumours. I can't speak for Stone. All I can say, he would made have. I just, I, I wish the man all the best because he's an old man now and he served a lot of time in jail. And whatever way you look at it, he didn't stay, serve time in jail for robbing banks. He served time in jail for the loyalist cause. Our respect for what you, what organisation he was affiliated to or wasn't. He was, a, he was a loyalist, and he was in there single heartedly, and he done that on behalf of the loyalist people. So you have to give them on respect where it's due. You went from being in the UDA as, I don't know what you would call it, a rank and file member, um, to very quickly claiming through the organisation. Uh, I think it's, it was 10 years. You joined the UDA in 1984. You became brigadier in 1993. I mean, that's very quick to claim up a paramilitary I don't think it was, was very quick. I don't think it was anything special. I think it was just change and change of circumstances where John Stevens came in to investigate sort of collusion within loyalists, paramilitaries and members of security forces. And what that done was, was, was get rid of uh, the old guard in the UDA who were not active, they were not military. And that left room for people like myself who was willing to be active. And then the rest was history. So I wouldn't think it was anything special that I'd done or said, or it was just a, a situation arose where they're no, they're, they're not there now. Well, let, let's get a, 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 let's get a bond of men in here that, that that's that's going to try and match the IRA, not match them, but have a good date at them at the IRA. And I think we've done a good job of that. But so, we weren't doing that with these old leaders. So basically, with. The removal of certain leaders in the yeah. UDA had paved or had left the path open yeah. for a more militant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what I've done there, I, I, I knew from past experience for being in the UDA organisation and sitting doing it for years and not being involved in any military activity. So I, over the years, I identified who would be 
military and who would be dedicated and who would who and would be the type of men that I could build around me and the type of men that they were hungry to f- try and defeat the IRA. And I think that's where I scored because I had that knowledge of, of men where I was interested in the men and I'm sure these men were interested in me and whatever our rubbish wasn't there, we got rid of them. If there was still some old rubbish there, we got rid of them. It's either push or be pushed. So I pushed them. Um, we, we, we became global war and, and, and lots of people believed in me, obviously, I think. And that, that's why the, the ranks swelled. The recruits came forward and then I tried to make it into an army that was willing to strike fear in the enemy territory. I think we did. Well, there's no doubt that your organisation struck fear not only into the people that you're talking about, but the ordinary Catholic population. And when you were arrested in 1995 for directing terrorism, which was a charge brought in, you believed to take you off the streets during your trial, Pat Lynch, who, the prosecuting, who was the prosecuting lawyer, said that you're dedicated to your cause, which was nakedly sectarian and its hatred of those it regarded as militant Republicans, among whom he lumped almost the entire Catholic population. So when you talk about targets, you're not just talking about the IRA because innocent Catholics lost their yeah, lives. I know, I know, but if you go down this road, and it's like it's, yeah, nobody wants to go back to that. It's happened, it's been there, done it, and no, nobody wants to remind of that. But that was a two tier. I mean, you could go Anna Skillen, I could read them all on top of my head, Shankle Bowman, the, 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 the Le Mans, Darkley, the, 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 just the list goes on and on and on, where they were just naked sectarian and multiple numbers. Yes, it was a sect, that was basically a sectarian war, if, if we're being honest. Catholics were, were, the Republican paramilitaries were, were killing Protestants and vice versa. And that's what was happening. And if you want to talk about an individual as me, I mean, we were all engaged. We would all put our hands up. We were all, there was thousands of us in, in, in the loyalist paramilitaries and there was thousands in the Republican paramilitaries. And yes, we supported that and, and everybody supported that. So the hypocritical to turn around and say, nah, no, we weren't, we weren't. It wasn't like that. We were, yes, it was like that. At certain times it was. And the list goes on, and I could have a bigger list of naked sectarian attacks brought on to my community by people, by the Republican movements, than they could level against ourselves. The Shankle bomb, that was an attack planned to kill you. The IRA had went in, and, and they thought that they, they were going to kill well, you. Well, in the aftermath, the IRA issued a statement saying that the, the bomb was intended for the the leadership of the UFF, who met above that office. Now, first and foremost, I know for a fact there's no way the leadership of the UFF would have been in that UDA office having the meeting because the leadership of the UFF, UDA, would have been intelligent enough to realise these offices are being monitored. So that was was a nonsense. That was a sectarian bomb. And just a five percent here, we're off to them boys up the stairs and throw Johnny at Thursday name until it because everybody knows him. Name Protestants died along with the bomber. Where were you when you heard about the attack? I was in the mayor's prison, visiting Sammy McCrory. And when did you get word that the bomb had happened? When I had head back home. 
How did you feel? Got it. Sad. Disgusted at what I had done. It was carnage. It was mayhem. And, and to be honest, for them, for people that are running around saying that I'm not sure if the IRA said it was Johnny Adair we were going for, if the police were saying this or people said this, but I do remember the IRA statement saying that the bomb was intended for the leadership of the UFF. There was no specific names mentioned in that statement that I can remember. But it's sad, it's, it's, it's bad, it should never have happened. It was a sectarian attack, but it goes deeper when... when my name's put into it, but that was meant for you, Johnny. And all these innocent people lost their lives. Men, women and children. Yeah. Do, was there any stage that you felt a sense of guilt that they lost That's, that's what I'm only after saying. It made it, it made it all the worse because there was whispering, well, not whispering, the police were the first to say that that bomb, bomb was meant for Johnny Adair. And I'm only after saying what I said in the IRA statement. The bomb was intended for the UFF leadership who were meeting up the stairs. Now, they didn't specifically say Johnny Adair. Obviously, the, obviously that, that's who we're thinking of, but I know, and the UFF leadership would know, and I'm sure most of the Shandle would know, that the UFF would not meet in that office. So the IRA, I mean, they would have known that too. That was just a blatant sectarian bomb because uh, they, they were feeling under pressure at the time because it was the month of October when loyalist paramilitaries were hitting them, hitting them hard. So what they done was came onto the heart of the shankle, justified by putting the bomb in the face shop below UDA offices. And then justified even more by, well, you ever thrown Johnny Adair's name in the UFF. That was 1993. Um, within a week, there was the Greystale massacre, which was carried out by the UFF. Yeah. Um, another uh, senseless slaughter, sectarian slaughter. Well, this is, it goes on and on and on. We could start from 1969 right up until the month you're talking about, which I think I described that as Black October. And it was a month and a time when loyalists were starting to outdo Republicans with their fans. And that's why, and that's important, that's why everybody and anybody redoubled their efforts to, to ensure that ceasefires were called and a mechanism was put in place for talks to be held. They eventually lead up to the Good Friday Agreement, which did happen. And even at the time of the Shankill bombing, I myself was a leader of the organisation. We were engaged with talking with, with, with clergymen and cross-community leaders and, all, and, and the eventuality of bringing about cessations of violence on both sides. So even though we were talking peace, the area was still blowing innocent people up. So you go to jail. You're charged with directing terrorism, held on remand. Was there any point that you thought, oh, these charges aren't going to stick? What have they got on me? When did you realise that I think I'm going to jail for a long time well, here? When, when, when the then Chief Constable, Sir Ronnie Flanagan, at the time said that because, to quote, because of the significance of this individual, we had to introduce legislation to bring about charges of directing terrorism to put this man behind bars. So that was a political decision. I had been arrested multiple times, never charged or charged in the audit a couple of times. But I mean, in this country, you're innocent until proven guilty. Intelligence is not evidence. 
So because I had been arrested so many times and they felt that they couldn't, couldn't get me because I was innocent. So you have to be released if you're innocent or if there's no evidence against you. So they felt, right, we're going to have to choreograph charge. And that's what they've done. They introduced legislation to bring about that charge. And that's that's what they've done. And they've, what did it do? Well, I knew, I knew maybe one day I would go to jail. I was, I was willing to go to jail for, for, for my organisation and for my country. I was willing to die for my organisation and my country. So that was no, it was no shock to me. I'd been in jail many, many times before that for serious, serious uh, charges against the Republican movement. I beat them. But this one, I, I knew there was, there was no fight. There was no fight there. It was a political decision. Is and there I, any part of you that was relieved to go to prison? Relieved? No, to be honest, but I felt when I, when I go to prison, and it did happen, when I went to go to prison, I believe the IRA leadership in Belfast, they, they, they targeted me. They believed that I was the, I was the driving force behind the Ulster Freedom Fighters. So they tested the ace when I went to prison. What they done was, there was, to be honest, there was a cease of UFF activity. So the IRA decided after a couple of weeks, let's go, this is my opinion, let's see if this man was the driving force. Let's hit one of the political men. So they was out in the heads of Lisburn and they killed uh, Ray Smallwood, a lovely man, a gentleman. Guy Ray shot him dead, took over a house, killed him. Then they sat back with a UFF response. Sadly, there was no UFF response. This was done for weeks and weeks. And then the IRA, hierarchy, Belfast Brigade, right? Fuck, there's been no response there. Let's hit one of our military men and see what the response is. Maybe there was the fucking driving force. So they go and there's the fucking murder, the, the late great Joe Braddock, slaughtered him, cut him in two in the middle of the armor road. Sadly, again, still no fucking UFF response. So I think you're, the, the answer to your question, no, I would have preferred still being on the outside. So, you're, so more people would have lost their lives? Well, sure. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is there would have been a different approach to what had happened to Ray Smallwood and Joe, uh, uh, Remy Elder and Joe, Br- Joe Bradley. Had I been out? And that would have been no, people losing no their lives. About that. I make no excuse about that. That's what we're there for. The Ulster Freedom Fighters were there. That's what people like me were in the leadership level for. They engage with these people. Give them back what they're getting on to you. But sadly, it didn't happen when I was in jail. What was jail like? Um, command structure, similar sort of makeup to the organisation that you were in? Like it became different, a bit different. Once we went to jail, and the, the hard work was done because I was part of it when, when I was on the outside. But peace was going to come one day, and right, they put all the boogeymen, all the, the dangerous people in jail. In my opinion, you look at all the people who went to jail. It was all key loyalists, UVF, UDA. It was key key players. Uh, so they did all this jail, and then they said, right, let's let's get this peace." And I'm glad they did. So what we done is we put me in particular. As part of the leadership, put our, our trust in, in, on the people outside who were negotiating for us. And they're, they're, I was only in the jail, so I wasn't expecting to get out next week or the week after. But I knew the prison issue would have been addressed. But I was there for the long haul. And in fact, I done. I got 16 years for dragging terrorism. At the time, I would have been out in half of that. But because of the Good Friday Agreement, they introduced legislation again to bring it up to three thirds. So when I got released, I was called back. I was out for nine months or something, and then I got released again and called back again. So in reality, I spent almost 12 years in jail. So at the Good Friday Agreement, I, I spent more, longer. I actually spent almost 12 years of my 16-year sentence. But before the Good Friday Agreement, I would only done half of that. Yeah. 
because your license kept getting revoked. Yeah. 1998, you were one of five loyalist prisoners visited by the Secretary of State in Mullum. What was that like? Were you open to that meeting or Absolutely, was it? yes, because again, it was getting all the hard work and the talks was, there was on the streets, you know what happened to the, the, the late great Billy Wright, and then there was an upsurge of loyalist violence, and then I think somewhere along the line that uh, the uh, Monitoring Commission uh, believed that the UDA, you stroke UFF, wasn't fucking engaged in some of it. So I think that's where they said, look, listen, we, we, what we done was we withdrew our support as prisoners, and without our support, there wouldn't have been a peace process. And then that's where the, the, she took the big risk to come in and meet myself. people like myself and Salma and Bobby Philpott. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. We touch on Michael Stone. And yes, we had a meeting with her. And it was... Is it... Is it true that she sat and smoked roll-ups with you on the no, prison she floor? Smoke roll -ups. She was smoking, but she wasn't smoking roll-ups. All oh, right. Well, we were That's... smoking joints, like. Drugs? So, you liked her? Momola? Well, it's, well, it's not that, that I like her. Well, the fact that she came in and listened to our fears and our concerns, that, yes. And do I believe that she was wasting our time or her own time? No. I believe that she was sincere. Mm -hmm. So in that context, yes, the, the woman was, she was brave enough to risk her career to take that gamble and come in and meet people like myself. 
Did I read that John Hume had met you as well? We met John Hume too. Actually, he visited us too. Most of these, most of these people and, and clergy came and met because they had to teach speak to people like us. People like us were we we were the people that was wearing the t-shirts prior to the Good Friday Agreement. And what I say to that, we were the ones that was on the ground. We were the ones that needed to be taught, like listened to. What was the biggest fear? At that time, in the talks about the Good Friday Agreement from loyalists, it's just all just nonsense. It's like, nah, it's like, oh, we're, we're heading towards United Ireland. Look, it's a Good Friday Agreement. We're almost thirty years, and we're still no United Ireland. And I can guarantee you, thirty years from now, there still will be a United Ireland. And to eat Jackie McDonald's word, a UDA leader, or so-called, he said 20 years ago that he would accept the United Ireland in 13 years. Again, that 13 years has passed. And in 30 years have passed, there still won't be United Ireland. So see all these people who think of stupid things and believe in stupid things, they should start thinking about important things, like watching the news tonight and watching what's going on in Ukraine. And they realise that's important things. When they see what's happening over there, it's not what they want to happen back over there for their blood and thunder speeches or their fears of you. There's no fucking United Ireland. There hasn't been a 30 years. There hasn't been a, a long a history of history. So there's not going to be one in five years, 10 years, 15 years, in my opinion. Well, it depends. I heard all that shit 30 years ago, United Ireland, we're all United. It's a sellout. 30 years ago, it's still not sold out. Well, it's up to the people. Seventy-two percent of the people voted for, for 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 the Good Friday Agreement. So there you go. That outweighs the, the negative people. I wouldn't listen to them people because them people weren't engaged in the conflict. And the new breed of loyalists, I, well, I wouldn't even do it. Where were they when we were getting the Andersons town, going off to the IRA? Where were these people then? So I wouldn't listen to them people. They're war mongers and they're fear mongers. So you got out of prison. Was it? 1999, and just before you got out, you were on a ticket weekend release. You got shot in the head at a UB40 concert, which you've spoken yeah. a lot about. Was that the first attempt in your life? No, there was multiple attempts in my life. When was the first attempt in your life? I it was. I was arrested one time. Well, but this specific time, and I was detained for seven days. And the special branch had me for them seven days. They tried to recruit me. They tried money to buy my soul. They came in with a suitcase full of money. They realised the money was my guard. So then they, they brought a woman in, a special branch woman. who was a very attractive looking woman who started all that stupid shit talk. So anyway, cut a long story short, they released me. But they'd done something in between that. They'd, they'd done a wee bit of dirty dealing on the outside with an informer where a weapon was 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 seized and they believed that I would have knew what that weapon was. But thank the Lord I did not know what that weapon was. But anyway, between the branch and the informer, the passed over that weapon. So the branch was expecting me to be found up an alley one in the head. It didn't happen. Three or four days later, driving up the shangle, stopped again, arrested on the professional terrorism act. Well, you're here for such and such, blah, blah, blah. Takes me at the castle wreck. Same team of special branch. Nice as night. And first thing I said was, Johnny, we made a mistake last week. Uh, we offered you £50,000 in that suitcase. He says, we blundered. He says, you, 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 you name your price. I says, I don't have a price. And it was then that I got angry with them, right? And then they got angry back and they told me about, they explained that they had formers and formers within the professional IRA, the UVF, the UDA, 
And what we will do, listen to this carefully, in particular the IRA ones that came after me, the, the ones that learned about me from the start, if this makes any sense, because this is what the special branch told me. We've informers everywhere, and we'll go to one of our PIRA form informers, and we'll tell him all about you, what you look like, where you live, where you drive, and what you're involved in. And he, in turn, will go to his OC and tell him all about you. But he'll come up, we'll tell him to come up with a cock and bull story that he heard this information from his, his aunt who worked in the matter hospital as a cleaner or something like that. That's what they told me. And he says that they will be, who is Johnny Adair, where does he live, blah. And he will give him all that information. And then that's what he told me. He says, and we will tell him not to put a ball onto your car because you check it. Not to go through your door because it's, it's a Ford Knox, you couldn't get through it. But we'll get to a uh, routine. And I cockily, cheekily said, I, mean, I don't have a routine. Your mom just clicked his finger and said, Edinburgh School, UDA headquarters. I will tell them to take over a house. Now, that never happened, taking over houses, so that never scared me. I laughed it off. I me fucking cunts wouldn't do that. Three weeks later, the house facing me was taken over and they held the family hostage for almost three hours. I wasn't in the house that night. I was elsewhere. Were you saying special branch were behind that? And this is what they said, getting out, saying, you're getting released, you bastard. And he says, now, you go out there. Now, they told me exactly, the Edinburgh School, the IRA tried to get me there. UDA headquarters, that's where we spread my car. The house took over, they took over the house not once, but twice. And then they took over another house in uh, Shovel Street, and they panicked and run, just in and out. So three house takeovers, Edinburgh School, uh, the guy, the, 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 the NRA, the unit took, took over a house in, uh, in the bone the night before. They left in the mo- early in the morning to, to, to the school. They raided the school to do me, but that morning I didn't drop the kids off. So they went back and they gave the car back and said, don't report it. But an IRA man who was charged with the murder admitted it and admitted that they'd left to go to the town street to shoot Johnny there, but he never turned up. So the special branch told, and they said on the way out, he said, you're getting released. He said, now you can get Paisley was alive at the time. He says, you go to any politician you want. He says, Ian Paisley, all right, get the cameras, whatever you want. He says, and you tell them, he says, uh, you, you tell them all what we've told you. He says, who do you think you're going to believe? Dedicated RUC men like us are, are bastard like you. They did. They set me up. They did. Because that, that was new. And th- specifically, don't come through your door. If that was IRA men just guessing to come for Johnny Thurr, they'd translate hammer through my door or they'd put it up under under my car, take over the house. And that never really happened. They didn't take over houses. But they came in and took over three houses and, and then where I lived in the shangle. When did the attempt on your life from the 14th Intelligence Unit officer happen? And they're in their 90s. What happened there? Well, I believe again they were sent to kill me. Because the way, because I, I was a thorn in their side. I tell you the full story. A week prior to that, an undercover officer was sort of stalking out a, a place where he believed the UDA were meeting in North Belfast. So he was challenged, chased, surrounded, assaulted, and his weapon removed. So within twenty minutes. My house was raided by the SSU, by the RUC. Splash hammer two doors out. Assaulted most of us in the house. Put forensic suits on, my wife included, and took us all to Castle Ray. And I went into Castle Ray. I mean, what the fuck's going on here? Has, has there been a massacre? And uh, and I get the blame for it as usual. Then the man just came in, big company suit. He says, "Get it back. It's a good one." I didn't know what he meant. But then it became clear that it was a gun. So that an undercover boy, he'd got his brain spear in and his gun was taken. 
Now, where I lived, now this, we were living, I think only held this for two days. So where I lived, I, I appeared, I drove around the corner one day, and I seen this writing on the wall. And obviously it was someone who had the gun and knew the serial number. And they'd written, are you see dickheads? We got your 15 shots, Smith & Wesson, 9mm pistol, and the serial number. So obviously the police, with the patrol mag, so obviously they must have thought, he must have knew about it. So that was then when the undercover boy, he lured me out of that house. He lured me out. There was and this the, is a British soldier, an elite, elite undercover British. Undercover 14th Intelligence. He, the way they have looked at it, right, they could have justified killing me, and he tried to kill me, but the rounds missed. And they would have justified that, in my opinion, by going, my colleague was seriously assaulted a week prior to that in North Belfast. He had his weapon removed, and it still hasn't been found. Mr. Adair was arrested in connection with that and released without charge. I felt that Mr. Adair was coming to do this on me, so I feared for my life in Sharon. And who, there would have been no public outcry. Politicians would have went, well, that's what he was at. We've probably done that. They'll probably blame me on doing the fucking boy the week before. And then the fact that the serial number, the gun number was written on the wall. So anyway, he just lured me out of the house. The lights kept going on. And the people in my house, nobody could get in the house because there was steel shutters and all. So I opened the door and I was, I was to me, you're looking somewhere, mate. Because he quite clearly kept breaking the beam in my house. So I went to the shop and they were all panicking. Who the fuck's he? So I was me, are you looking at me? He's going to speak. And there's me, are you, are you lost? Big donkey jagging on. But he wouldn't speak because he was English. And the cop knew if he'd have spoke and had identified the English accent, oh, who's you? And he'd have heard off my shoulder length. So when I walks after him and he stopped, and I stopped about 15 feet behind him, and he look, I'm not speaking to you, what are you looking? And again, he turned, but he was trying to lure me closer. But the third time that I felt sense, this is a trap, but I thought it was Republicans. I mean, this comes walking me into a trap. They're going to come out here and fucking cut me in two. And when he seen I stopped, he then, this was after three stops and stops and me shouting, and then I started shouting at me, you fucking, I'm speaking to you. So they stopped and they looked, and he seen the fear in my face. So he knew that I wasn't coming any further. And I was out, because I knew, I didn't think it was British intelligence. I thought it was Republicans. I me, fuck. And just as that, when obviously he seemed if he just turned around, just fucking empty the fucking boom, 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 boom. I, run, I was 15 behind him. My big mate was 30 feet behind me. And he was hit twice, three times. And I don't know, I got See, when I was wrong, I seen these here, we two, 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 we Persian cars, one, one man, and one, one man in each car. Again, it was undercover. They were just squeaking, like, over the bottom of the wall. They tried to kick a door into the pub, but one, one, an Orby car came around. So they were all in my era. He was, I believe, sent to shoot me dead, and he tried, but the grace of God and all them rounds found my body. I think he fired eight rounds, nine rounds, or eleven. Not one of them found my body, and it was 15 feet from him. At any point during this, I mean, the attempts on your life, the constant threats. and Did you never say to yourself, is this worth it? No, I know. To be honest, no, I knew. Eventually, one day, I accepted that they'll kill me. But if they're coming after me the way they are, I must be doing something. I, I must be. And who's they? Because the Republicans, well, the IRA. We also had to worry about the, the British 
Same I didn't worry about them. The, the, the only worry I had with them was, if you look in the history of the Trollmans, there was a shoot-to-kill policy where, where key IRA men were shot dead. That's make no mistake. That was a shoot-to-kill. They were dangerous men who they couldn't get through the courts. Now, it's my understanding that within loyalists, from what I can remember, the only ones that they've ever done that with was Brian Robinson, who the 14th Intelligence shot, the late great Billy Wright that tried to kill, and myself. I can't think of any other loyalists. So they, here was three loyalists who they deemed were, they were, they need that we can't get these men, so we need to do what we've done with the Republicans and the shoot the kill policy. And there's no doubt that guy was there to shoot me, to kill me. Well, but and, they, and I tried to put a compensation claim and they told me to fuck off. They didn't say fuck off, like, but they chased me. And I was innocent in the house, came out to the door, no weapons, no arrest, and this fucking cunt opens up on me. And the statement was on the news saying it was a non-Jude undercover soldier that was involved in the shooting in Hazelfield Street tonight. No, he was sent in to do me. But that was part and parcel of what it was. I accepted things like that would happen. And even after the Good Friday Agreement, there were, there were still attempts on your life, multiple attempts on your life. After the Good Friday, well, they tried to poison me in the jail. That was an attempt on my life, the INLA. And over here in Scotland four years ago. How did the INLA try to poison you in prison? They put uh, strychnine in my, my, my protein powder. Oh, so is that like rat poison? Yep. In your protein powder? Yep. How did, it, how did, how did they manage to get it inside you? Because I got someone, because you could only spend £20 in the talk shop, and the protein was £20, and I wanted to get other things. So I had, would give someone someone who didn't buy, buy talk shop, but I put money in his account that he would buy me or order the protein in his name to give to me. But the Republic, well, the analyzed sympathizer, there was one analyzer on there, mm-hmm. and a sympathizer, and he learned that this guy was ordering me this stuff. So he went to him and get that for, you get that to us. And when he ordered it, he get the slice of meat, silver bit at the top, put the analyzer, brought, got smuggled the strychnine in it, strychnine in Because I humiliated one of, one of the analyzer men in the jail, and he got released, and then that's when it happened. I left him, uh, he was, I sort of had words with him, um, and he, he didn't like it. How did you discover that it was inside the, the protein? I didn't, I took a drink of it, and it, it was the most horrible taste ever in my life. And it, it burned, like, burned my tongue, so I spat it out. And you, the doctor told me, he said, Johnny, had you swallowed that? He said, you would have died a slow and agonising death all night. He said, I would have just had away with your internal organs. He said, there's nothing the medical could have, could have done. And it didn't, it didn't, it didn't, we didn't know we were guessing high did it get into my cell. We hadn't a clue until about a year later. It was one of their own, a wee Catholic, came and he told a friend of mine what had happened and who'd done it and how they'd done it. And it was, it was we would have never known in a million years. And it was just perfect. It was our stern in the eye and we, and we, we didn't realise it. And the person that was doing it, I was really, really good to that person. He was, he had nothing, he was poor and he was vulnerable. Nobody wanted him, no physics or nothing. I looked after that man, big time. And he was in the INLA? No, no, he wasn't. He was used. Right. But at least he could have came and said, Johnny, these cons are going to fucking poison you. But he didn't. But then again, that, that's... So, I mean, multiple attempts on your life. You go out, you get out of prison. You're returned twice. Within a few years. Yeah. And I mean, what's playing out now is that you don't really have to worry about the IRA killing you anymore. It's, it's a fellow loyalist. 
to be honest, I never worried about any of them because, listen, I believe what, when you've come through and you've referred so many times in your life as I have as an individual, I believe what's for you will not go by. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm definitely was shot dead, poisoned, blew up, and it'll happen. But do I worry that I lose sleep over weight and that happen? No. If it's going to happen, if I'm going to get happy with a bus, I'll get happy with a bus. We'll all have to go someday. I don't fear death. Never did. Had you resigned yourself to the, to the belief that you were going to die? Oh, absolutely. Every day I came out, I knew there was a chance that I'd be fucking killed here because the IRA were coming, and the INLN, they were coming after me hot and heavy. How was that for your family? Oh, I tried to, well, our house was fortified and I couldn't do the normal things with my family, which would have liked to have done. Couldn't have went shopping with them. Couldn't have went swimming with them. Things like that. And... Um- I mean, do you not look back and, and think, I missed out? Yes, I do. I did miss out. And then when I went to jail, I missed out too. Because you kind of love my kids with all my heart and they love me with all their hearts and they're, they're beautiful kids. And then none of them was any interest in politics or religion whatsoever. And yes, I kind of feel guilty because fuck you were their dad and look. But that's Belfast for you. It was, it's not that I woke up and wanted to be this fucking. It was the conflict that made me, not, not just me, thousands of people. So I'm not I'm not isolated on my own, albeit that I was probably known more than, than most people. But thousands of us suffered, and thousands of us has went through all these all these things that I've went through. So you go back to prison uh, a mo- number of times, and before you were sent away for the second time, you were expelled from the ADA, and. I think you were very defiant on that. It was business as usual on the Shankill. And what that was the, the beginning of the end of your time in Northern Ireland, would you say? Well, I don't know. I don't know who they suspect. I remember the UDA issued a statement. They named one man, but they didn't have the balls to name the other one. So they said the leader of West Belfast, but they named another man. And they said that the UDA have suspended them. Now, you're speaking about me, I don't know, they're, they're, you're saying business as usual. I can remember the banner went up in the lower shangle, West Belfast, no change, business as usual, which it, which it was. Then I was returned to jail, and then the, the powers to be, the dirty tricks, the, 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 they used their manipulation to, with informers and other people to do what they'd done, because they deemed that them people on the lower shangle, a handful of them, but they were dangerous, dedicated people. And they needed bread of them, and that's what happened. But and I was in jail when it happened, so I don't think I wouldn't. I, w- I wouldn't have. I, w- I would have done the best to make sure it didn't happen. If I was been there, and I, I would have had them cards running in a different direction. I knew I would have. Your family and followers were forced out of Northern Ireland, and you were in prison. Yeah. When you got that phone call in prison to say that was happening, could you believe it? No, absolutely not. No. Did it come out of the blue? Absolutely. I was isolated. I had not achieved a visit for a year. My wife was diagnosed with cancer, a bad form. But yes, it was hard. I was locked on a wing with nobody else, only myself. 20 cells in it, all the doors locked. Only me there, two screws, giving me my food through the grill every day. 24 months I spent like that. Didn't have a visit for a year. Everything got gone through. Yeah, but, but, but I came through it. Yes, it was hard because... The organisation that you loved and the people that you loved, but more importantly, the people who I would have died for and I could have counted them on one hand, 
Four of them, it's three of them, it's one of them's dead, but the other three backstabbed me. One of them didn't, the other one's dead, so I didn't know where he had one. That hurt me more than anything, in particular, one of them, who's still there today. And I considered him to be one of my best mates, and he had no reason to fall out with me, none whatsoever, but he did. But it's clear to me now why he done that, but I'll not go into that. So you're taken out of jail uh, about a year later after yep. after your family and, and your friends had to, to flee. Uh, you're brought to Bolton in a military helicopter. I mean, yep. what were you thinking when you were being taken out of prison and put into a military well, she, helicopter? It's it's unheard of. I know. How do you think I felt? I was panicking. I haven't run in a helicopter in my life until... That's twice to twice going into McGabry, calling out of McGabry, and especially going across the REC. And you have to put a big suit on you and they tell you that just in case the helicopter goes down, that's frightening. So they're telling you that they might go down here. So, I, oh, yes, I was planning to go to England to bring you in the police station. The fucking like these police read you the Rad Act. You're not allowed to go to Belfast. You're not allowed to go near Company C. That's what they called it. So I was in Belfast the next fucking morning. Yeah. I said, right, no problem, officer. <laughs> back to Belfast the next day. But what, no, what, what was I thinking? I don't know. You have to ask the Evans. They were thinking that, what, because I said that when I was getting out of McGabry, that I was going back and I wanted answers for what had happened. And it started to talk. So they, the people probably knew who, the, who I was referring to. But more importantly, the cops were thinking that this man starts, there'll be trouble and there'll be a lot of. I don't know, war crimes, I don't know, people would be tried for war crimes. So what they done was they didn't let me out on with the sad date because on the lead up to that, there was death flat after death. The police were up there, your life's in danger, your life's in danger, your life's in danger. Uh, so what they done, they came in two days before it was being released, five o'clock in the morning, put a hood over, put that hood, put a big coat over my head. A coat? Yeah. Put me in a, put me in a bulletproof jacket and all on me. Put me out, pitch black at about four in the morning. I thought it was a search, stripped a cell search at four o'clock in the morning looking for something. Threw me in the next set. Two of the biggest screws that ever came across in my life. These two guys were like big Tyson Fury, six foot seven, six foot five. Two of the biggest, and they stuck a body armor on me. Then the police cars took me up to the army camp and their, their, uh, Alder Grove. They hooted me because they didn't want me to see the lady of the army because they must have went, don't let this man see what the military surroundings are like. So they cut my cover so I couldn't take a man to load. That's what they thought of me. And then they flew me to Bonchester. And, I mean, it must have been such a shock to be living somewhere where there was no troubles, no issues. To be honest. Did you, well, did you find it hard to get used to? No. no? It was a life that, that we had been robbed of because of the conflict for, for all these years. And then I'm finding myself... In a place where you can go to football matches, if you're interested. You can go to boxing, which I loved and I was passionate about. I couldn't do that in Belfast. I couldn't go to a ba boxing fight in Belfast. I'd have been killed because Catholics hated me. So understandably. But in England, you were able to do things that, fuck, there's nobody going to shoot you. There's no police stopping you. There's no, it was just a normal life. Although it was a wee bit hard to get used to. But because it became a normal life, and then after a while, you realise, you, you think of some of the people who fucking scumbag bastards. What the fuck was I surrounded with these people for? They're nothing but fucking cards, traitors with a capital T. So you learn, I learned a hell of a lot. 
of hell of a lot. You moved to Scotland and you've been there ever since. Yeah. You're happy. Um, is it a case of you always looking over your shoulder no, because listen, you've received multiple death threats from... Listen, but no, I haven't had a death threat and the last death threat I had was a year ago. A year? Ah, yeah. And, what, and how Did was that delivered? Did just says, like, you're nice in danger. I says, like, could you be specify more? Could you tell me it was coming from across the water? She says, look, we can't specify. And that's so from the police in Scotland? Yeah. yeah. The police in Scotland told yeah. you this? Yeah, but where, where, where the threat came from and the intelligence came from, I don't know. But it's not something that I don't look. Listen, I will always be a target. I mean, I, I mean, obviously the Republic is a fucking hate me. And they would have long, long memories, of course, of especially dissidents. But they wouldn't have the fucking brains to do. I mean, they, you know what I mean? They, it's just, I just don't, I don't worry about that. Look, your fate's laid out for you. If you're, if you're meant to die tomorrow, you'll die tomorrow. Be shot, blew up, or hit by a bus. You don't know. It'll happen. We'll die anyway one day. But it's not something that I worry about or scare about or get paranoid over. And there was a, a plot to kill you and your friend Sam it was a McCrory. It was a series. It, it was a conspiracy. And there was five of them or six of them. Got 16 sentences raised from 16 years down the name. It was a, a, a surveillance. These boys were under surveillance for 13 months. MI5, Special Branch, PSNI, and uh, police, uh, Scottish police. And they had them under surveillance for 13 months, but that secretly recorded them one that they were actually doing dry runs. They actually found an assault rifle with a shotgun or something. But these boys were like, fucking fools. Don't believe they were going to fucking come and shoot me at fucking fools. They've talked about it for 13 fucking months. They're going to, they were dedicated fucking close quarter killers that have came and fucking done it in the first or second week. Not 13 months talking shit in the fucking prison fucking cells and phones and fucking cars. But did it scare you? Because I yeah. assume that you're over here and you thought there was that type of threat would be very rare. Well, in England, sure, it was fucking 15 shots fired through my window in England. And that was by somebody out of the organisation well, you were... Well, the, the UFF said that they, they, they had done it. So it was 15 rounds fired through that window. There was an attempt, a serious attempt to kill me and Scully over here. But did it scare me? No. Did you feel when you moved over here and... Um, I'm not too sure if there's much sectarianism in Glasgow or Scotland or um, anywhere near where you live. Uh, do you feel it mellowed you a bit in any way? Well, it makes you realise that Belfast, is, like I've been in the GL where, where, where mixed with Catholics and all, Belfast is a, an aggressive place. Lots of the people there are aggressive. Scotland is not like that really. You do, you do have better loyalists over here who would be more bitter than some of the most bitter Protestants back home in Ulster. And I've seen that firsthand. And, and I mean, even with somebody like me, they wouldn't expect me to wear green shorts or, or things like that. There would be stupid things that I, I wouldn't cross my mind. They would, they would take a fat, the fuck are you doing more than John, green. Well, that's Hugo Boss, they are fucking green. So things like that, that's just... I, you you realise as time goes on, you know. You, I realise what we were fed. That was like a sectarian war over there, where you were born, brought up to hate Catholics. 
But do I have that? Do I think I would still feel the gap? I know. I think most people over there would feel the same. And the stories I hear from over there, like Catholics and Protestants, truly but surely, like, and it's a long road. They do, there is friendships there. And, and, and that's good. And that's good for the next generation coming through. Because nobody wants to live segregated the way we do. And it's like here, if Catholics here, yes, it took me a while to realise he's a tag. You call him tag over, we call them tags or fiends. Right, Catholics, that, right, that's what the, that's the right name. But over here, they call, I don't know what they call him, but it took me a while to realize that he's a tig or he's, but after a while, it doesn't, it doesn't fucking matter because there's no aggression. They're not hatred because I'm a Protestant or I'm John. Certainly, some of the fuckers are there, but it's not even like that where you're a fucking bastard. Did you, you hate Catholics? I mean, did you despise? We were brought up, I worked with Catholics. No problem whatsoever. No problem whatsoever. Six years I spent working down on Cruise Street with Catholics. Some of them from Anderson's town, lots of them from, from the New Law, all over. Never said a crossword to me. Never said a crossword to anybody. Never even mentioned religion. So if you're asking me, that was a time before I was eight or nine when I run about with Catholics, so I didn't really know do we like these or do we dislike them from my friends. So when work, where, where it was at the age where you realised, no, there was not a problem with them people, and vice versa. But as time goes on, the IRA uh, are responsible for, I believe, for people like myself and other loyalists hating or thinking that they hated Catholics, and in reality they didn't really hate the Catholics. It was the IRA who was putting that that hatred into us by doing what they were doing. Because we, we looked at it like this, like the IRA, the, the Catholic community, most of the Catholic, because Sinn Féin used to get big votes and they still do, most of the Catholics voted Sinn Féin. And to, to uh, the, the, the Danny Morrison, his phrase of the Armalite in the ballot box, that was a vote for Sinn Féin. So to me and the us was, they're ordinary Catholics are voting Sinn Féin, they're voting for the Armalite in the ballot box, they're voting for us to be fucking shot dead or blew up. So that was a sense that, that because of the vote and the support that Sinn Féin had, the innocent Catholics are fucking supporting us to be fucking whitewashed. Do you realise now that a lot of what you thought wasn't actually reality? Well, at the time, we didn't have the, we, we, we weren't educated to that because we didn't have this, we couldn't sit down with Catholics and engage. That was a non-starter. We didn't even see Catholics. If we, you didn't, you didn't, if, if you were in the Belfast City Centre shopping, it was probably 50-50, but you didn't know because mm -hmm. there was no difference and we're all one. Yeah. And I think the only difference in the Catholic and a Protestant, like, and we're all human beings, but his birth, our birth certificate, the, the certificate says Presbyterian, and there says whatever it says, the Catholic Church or whatever. But in reality, they're, they're just, they're no different. They're, they're mm -hmm. from the same country and the same... Collusion, as a t it's a topic that has been on the news quite a lot over Absolutely. the last Absolutely. few As months. It's a word that I hate because I know when you hear the word collusion, come with it from the police ombudsman as informers. And informers within certain uh, parliamentary organisations, whoever she's investigating, and it's, it's disgusting. It's, 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 and I hear it because here we have so-called loyalists or Republicans in an organisation 
trying to defeat the enemy, but yet of all what these informers are doing, or have been unearthed as, as working for the police or the security services to bring down their own comrades. So I, I hate clear and collusion because I know what's coming from it. And, 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 and it's disgusting the fact that people can be directly involved in murder, but yet of all be members of paramilitaries and work for a special branch or whatever, whatever, whatever agency. It's disgusting. It turns my guts. I hate informers and I hate everything about them. Uh, the police ombudsman found collusive behaviour by police in 11 royalist murders. That was a report released in February. And it also identified uh, significant investigative and intelligence failures. Uh, the eight, eight South Belfast UDA members linked to 27 uh, attempted murders and murders, and all of eight of them were police informants at the time of the... See, this, this is what I hate about it. This is, in my opinion, I, and I, I hate informers, and I know what should be done with them, right? But in my opinion, it appears in recent years, in the last number of years, it seems to be acceptable to be an informer within Moorish communities because there's not, nothing done about it. There's nothing done about it. And that sickens me to the core. One of the weapons at the Sean Graham bookmaker atrocity uh, was a Browning semi-automatic pistol stolen from an army base. A UDA informant handed it to the police who deactivated it before returning it to the informer. Like, there's no doubt. Oh, there was, there's been two army bases that the same army base where a number of weapons were taken, right? And each and every single one of them weapons are now in the hands, are war through the weeks, months, and the years thereafter, they were told, all back in the hands of the branch because the informers within the organisation handed them back over in the way of getting someone to mind it, but pointing that house or that premise, wherever the weapons was, and the police were going and seizing the weapon and getting them back and a gate down the informers. Was there any acceptable level of collusion between loyalist paramilitaries and the security forces? In my opinion, I, I see had I been a man with, uh, with Frank at the time of Brad Nelson, I would have, that would have been acceptable in my opinion. I would have wrapped that man in cotton wool. Because that man was working for the FRU. What he was doing was the army was supplying him with dangerous professional IRA members, dangerous bombers, dangerous shooters, people who they couldn't get through the courts. Going to Nelson, giving them their debts, their cars, their occasions, and everything on them. And he in turn was coming to the, whoever he was coming to. And they in turn were going out to target these people. Now, in my understanding and of some great knowledge, that on all, all of what Nelson had been passing over, not one of them people involved had been arrested. Not one of them had been caught going on an operation or coming back in an operation. So what I'm saying is that man was not an informer. He was doing dirty work. But see if someone could come to me and produce hard intelligence on active IRA members and give you a green light, green light to get in and, and engage him with them. Oh, I, I'd wrap him in cotton wool. As long as Nelson wasn't wasn't touting men and sending men to jail and seizing weapons. Nelson was handing over the high-grade intelligence on high-grade IRA members and bombers 
and people were going after them. But how did you know? How would anybody know it's high grade? You're going off the word of somebody who's a double agent who, who couldn't be well, considered. Let's just hypothetically speaking, if a mom was personally engaged with a lot of work from Nelson, and it's just hypothetically speaking, that guy had been personally involved and had never been arrested, caught going or coming back, that would be my belief. I would say that's gospel, because I've only said hypothetically, say a man had been involved in five, six or seven things linked to Nelson, and he's been there and get back every time without being arrested. And probably to this day, he's still never been arrested. So I would say, that man's not fucking touting, man. He's doing the dirty work for the fucking government. We didn't mind, because yeah, he was our enemy. And remember, you're only as good as the intelligence you get. And no better intelligence coming from fucking people who right know who they are and where they are and where their safe houses are. A British soldier was jailed for passing your organisation information at, mm. at one point. So you would feel that's acceptable levels of collusion? Well, that guy, Derek Agee, uh, Agee you're, 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 you're referring to, uh -huh. he uh, he was subsequently imprisoned for, for, for what he admitted to. And he alleged that he passed on intelligence on, on leading IRA members. And um, the story goes that that guy was on foot patrol in West Belfast, the time the snipers were active throughout the province. And he was being gloated by RA men about his colleague being shot there the night before or the day after or whatever. And he felt that he couldn't do nothing. He was an IRA gunman, spitting in my face, slobbering, gloating on the death of my colleague or my comrade. And I can't do nothing. I, he can't do nothing. But he knew that there's people who are very active, and if, if, if I could point, my, my way of getting at these people would be direct, point these people in the right direction. And I believe that he done a very good job because... I mean, it's absolutely abhorrent that any member of the security forces would work for paramilitaries to murder yeah, people. But all's not for northern war. If you remember security forces... But, but the state shouldn't be involved I, in that war. Well, that's, that's not the state. It I mean, is the state. That's, that's, that's an individual who's second or who's been affected by the IRA. Oh, well, if that's he wants to join him. the UDA, why didn't he join the UDA? And he can carry out murder. He shouldn't be in the British Armed Forces, which is Her Majesty's service. I mean, they, she, they work for the Queen. They are, it's well, the British government. Well, they should not be, I, I mean, it's wrong. I, and I, I mean, that. anybody would say that's wrong. I salute Derek A.G. I salute that man. That man was a real man. I Do you still that. keep in touch with him? No. Damien Walsh was another sad tragedy that's been in the news recently. Damien was 17. He was gone down by sea company at his place of work in 1993. Again, the police ombudsman found collusive behaviours, significant investigative failures. You were linked to that in that you were named as person A who was under surveillance at that time that, that Damien was killed. Well, You've been previously asked, I, I mean publicly, by Damien's mum to, to tell her what you know. What do you know about Damien Walsh? I know nothing about it. I know nothing about it. And see what the police say, A, B, C, D, or... I, mean, I get the blame of lots of things. I mean, I've been arrested for multiple things and things that have nothing to do with. But, I mean, within elements of the special branch, I mean, it's easy to throw my name out and blame me on things. Damien Walsh, I was never arrested for that. knew nothing about it. 
I've read recent reports about the ombudsman said, and I've read about the police saying that um, Johnny O'Dara was all right. The, the media alleged I was A, B, or C. Well, I probably I would have been under surveillance most days, to be honest with you. So that's no shock to me. They're getting that wrong because I had nothing to do with that lot. So that's wrong. Absolutely. So, and, and if these people are saying, or if the ombudsman has discovered that these men were under surveillance, if these people were under surveillance before, why did they let them carry it out? That's my question to the police and the police ombudsman and the special branch and the military or whoever it was had them under surveillance. Why did they let this happen? Not directed at people who's innocent, like myself, directed at them people. Because they seem to know who the people was that done it, but they let them do it. I think that's wrong. I think that's totally wrong. And I think the collusion goes there with, if, if it's true, with a special branch of the military who were allegedly stating this place out. Last question, Johnny. What is your opinion on a truth commission? It's my opinion. My opinion is like, to be honest, people who's lost loved ones, both sides, no matter who it was, police, soldiers, Catholics or Protestants, Republican or Royalists, it doesn't really matter. Them families and the people close to their loved ones have been really, really hurt. They're still hurting to this day. Whether it's been 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 10 years ago or 5 years ago, that hurt, I believe, is still raw, right? Now, for Truth Commission, what you mean is for people in the paramilitary to come forward and explain in graphic detail how, why and who killed your loved one. I don't believe I would be against that because the, the only one, the, the only one you're hurting, or you're adding or, 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 or further hurting, trauma to, is their loved ones. They don't want to relive. They don't want to relive what happened to their loved ones. They don't. They know what happened to their loved ones, or, or whatever side it was, loyalists or republics. They know what happened thirty years ago, or forty years ago, or ten years ago. They got the knock on the door. The police had told them, blah blah. That's happened. They, them people have broke their hearts, and they're still probably breaking their hearts. So why do you want to rip their hearts open now? Uh, now, by a truth commission said, do you know what? Do you remember such and such? Here's who done it, and here's how they done it, and here's where, where they got their intelligence or why. I don't know. I don't think. I think you'd just be hurting, odd and odd and insult the injury and just throwing salt in the wood. And people, I mean, they'll go to their graves with, with, with breaking their hearts, with, with, with losing their loved ones from whatever whatever side it came from. So I don't. I wouldn't believe. I I, I, I don't believe it proves anything. Look. The people, if a truth commission was bringing these people back to life, I would be for it. But it's not. It's only hurting their loved ones. So I, I wouldn't be. No, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't want the RLE and really insult. Listen, Johnny, thank you very much for speaking to me today. You're welcome. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.